What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much and welcome, everybody. Here's what's ahead this hour. You'd think with all the chaos this year, the markets would be deep in the red, but they're not. In fact, the Nasdaq is up 8% since January 1st. We're going to look at who else is up, who's down, and who you should bet on. Plus, the rent is due for many retailers, and it turns out many aren't paying, and now the lawsuits are starting. We'll look at the chain reaction this could have. And buckling up and rolling the dice, airlines are seeing some bullish signs, and gambling is back in Las Vegas. We have full details of both of those ahead. But we begin with today's markets and a new record for the Nasdaq 100, isn't it, Dominic? It is a new record indeed for the Nasdaq 100, the biggest of the Nasdaq composite stocks. We hit it earlier, but we've since pulled back, and all the major averages have as well. The Dow Industrial swinging to a very modest loss right now, down one-third of 1%, 87 points. The S&P 500 off one-half of 1%, roughly 18 points to the downside. This is, by the way, an area of slowing momentum possibly, so we'll watch that for sure. And the Nasdaq composite off about three-quarters of 1% as well. For that Nasdaq 100, Check out these three names on a quarter-day basis. Since the end of March, we have seen Apple rise 27%, a big move there. Microsoft up 16% and Amazon 26%. Why do I mention these? These three stocks make up about a third of the NASDAQ 100 weighting, so these things have been driving the real gains. And then the IPO stock of the day so far, Zoom Info, not to be confused with Zoom Communications, Zoom Video. It's up 76% right now. It actually hit $42 right in the opening minute. Remember, priced at 21 So for a very brief moment, Kelly, it was doubling its IPO value in the opening minutes. But you can see some slowing momentum there. I'll send things back over to you. Still, that's a wild. Uh, they're getting some Zoom momentum. I think, zoom, Zoom, Zoom. Them. Yeah. <laughs> Dom, thanks very much. We'll okay. see you in a little bit. You'd have no idea. We've been through crisis after crisis this year. If you looked at the stock market, the Nasdaq is up over 7% since January 1st. The S&P is down only about 3 to 4%. But can the rally keep going? Join me to tap that are Rich Weiss, the chief investment officer over multi-asset strategies in American Century Investments, and Stephen DiNicolo is portfolio manager of Federated Kaufman Funds at Federated Hermes. It's great to have you both here. Um, Stephen, I'll start with you because the year-to-date performance is mind-boggling. You know, you'd almost just think it was any old pretty good year. Sure, nothing to see here, right? I mean, look, the market is really remarkable. When you look you mentioned year-to-date, but let's just look over the last 12 months. The S&P 500 is actually up over 10% over the last 52 weeks. Um, if you look on an equal-weighted basis, it's actually still up over 2% over the last 52 weeks. So tremendous resilience. We don't think we're going to retest those March lows. And really, the entire market is trading almost like a big cyclical stock. And in cyclical investing, you buy the bad news on the idea that tomorrow looks better than today. And this June quarter numbers aren't going to look great, but the market is looking past that. And we're looking at the market in three specific buckets. Number one, you have the long-term secular winners, Amazon, Facebook, company like that, who are going to continue to take market share. And number two, you have the losers, companies where those business models are not going to come back. Think about um, companies like retail, um, restaurants, Hertz, JCPenney, companies that you've already seen bankrupt. 
And then most importantly, you have companies that I'm calling survivors that will turn into thrivers, where their business is currently knocked down a little bit due to the pandemic, but should come back stronger when things normalize. Interesting. So, see, uh, Rich, when you look at the market, I know you've been much more cautious on the prospects uh, over the back half of the year. When do you think the relief phase ends and the disappointment phase begins anew? Yeah, it uh, over the next several months, there's bound to be some disappointment. You know, Kelly, the, the three big or the three tough questions right now, number one, will there be a second wave? Number two, are stocks overvalued? Number three, uh, I don't know, do I look fat in these pants? But I'll just take the first two. As far as the second wave is concerned, even with the second wave of coronavirus, it's likely most state and local economies will remain open at least partially. So that's not a worry for stocks right now. In terms of valuation, however, how would you even know if stocks were overvalued in the near term? Even corporate managements have given up, given guidance. Longer term is where the problems are. Uh, a major uh, Wall Street firm came out with reports showing that maybe upwards of 10 or 20 percent of the job losses may be permanent or longer term rather than just temporary, right? The so-called labor market scarring effects of this whole disaster. And, and secondly, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office themselves, uh, forecast that it may take up to 10 years to get back to the level of GDP that we had in 2019. So if, if stocks aren't disappointed, there's certainly a ceiling to equities uh, over the longer term. Rich, I wonder, though, you know, not to mean any kind of disrespect to CBO forecasts or or those other research studies, but isn't the market just as legitimate a source of information? You know, what if the stock market is telling you that those folks are being overly cautious? Sure. Uh, I'm sorry, your sound is going out here. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going I'll come, uh, Rich, yeah. I'll come back to you in, ju in just a moment. Steve, I'll, I'll give you a chance to kind of answer that. Um, how good a track record does the stock sure. market have? And, and what happens if, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, we're down another 20 percent and all of a sudden it's giving us some information that looks very different? Sure. It really all depends on the part of the market that you're focusing on. At the Federated Kaufman Fund, over 30 years, we've been looking at these long-term secular winners, and we focus on picking stocks regardless of what the economic backdrop is. So I have a couple of names that I can talk to you about. For example, a company like Serence. They're a small cap profitable software company focused on voice recognition in the automobile market. They have a dominant market share of 90%. Now, have you tried to buy a car lately? Auto sales are down tremendously. Their business is gonna come off off plan. But we believe that if you can actually take a breath and think longer term and say to yourself, will the car continue to get smarter? Will Serence's content per vehicle continue to go up? Right. Will you be able one day to say, car, please tell me about a Mexican restaurant that's open right now, three stars or above, that has good burritos? You know, we think the answer to that is going to be yes. And so a company like Serence, if you can look through the near-term noise, you know, you're never sure what a stock is discounting in the very short term. But if you can take a two to three year track record on these survivors that will turn to thrivers, you can be very, very successful. All right. So there's a, a good example of what that trend would look like. And Rich, I'll come back to you and, and same question. What if the stock market is telling you that all of those forecasts and, and researchers are, are much too bearish on prospects for the economy? It's very possible, right? Stock market is a, a good forecaster of the economy as opposed to the other way around. And there's definitely some encouraging signs in terms of the breadth of this uh, stock market rally. You know, 
basically feeding into value stocks, financials, industrials, etc. That's all very encouraging. But the stock market has a tendency to, to overvalue and undervalue to extremes. So maybe we went down too far a month or two ago, but there's a very real possibility that we're overreaching here in the near term. True. We have definitely seen that before. Uh, thank you both for joining me today talking about these markets. Rich Weiss and Stephen DiNicolo. Appreciate it very much. Meantime, a big move for your 401k plan, the Labor Department approving private equity as an investment option for the first time. The move gives the industry access to more than $6 trillion. For more on this, let's bring in Sharon Epperson, who's looking at what it means for retirement savings, and Mike Santoli, who's looking at why this is happening now. Welcome to you both. Mike, let's start with you. Well, the primary reason, Kelly, why it's happening now, it seems as if the private equity industry has been looking for this change to happen, pressing for it. They would like a new distribution channel. Right now, pension funds and uh, very wealthy individuals have very heavy allocations and have for years in private equity. And the smaller retail investor, long-term retirement saver, is not uh, a market that they had access to. So clearly, it's a growth area. Now, the question being, is it something that individual investors have been craving, asking for? Arguably, yes. I mean, private equity has become more mainstream for a few reasons. You saw Vanguard actually partner up and try to get into this business just a couple of months ago. Part of it is because all these companies that now have stayed private. So private equity is a larger share of the corporate value that's out there in the world and, of course, outside uh, the public market. So those are the main reasons I would say it happening. Now, uh, as to whether it's a great time uh, to kind of grab for private equity returns, that's not really clear. They've had great record over the very long term, but there's so much capital now devoted to it. It's unclear if future returns will match those. What, roughly speaking, Mike, are the returns for private equity? Because this is generally a high fee kind of product as it well. Is. I'm also curious. I mean, there's so many different. Each fund is different. It's like saying you can have access to the bond market. OK, well, which QCIP? Exactly right. I mean, these funds typically raise their money all at once up front in a given vintage year, and then they invest it and harvest those gains down the road. I'm not sure how it's going to work with 401k plans, but the returns have been quite good as they are reported, but there aren't any public reporting standards. So they've been better than public equities as reported, but also they're skewed to the long ago historical period when private equity returns seemed as if uh, they were elevated because it was a relatively immature part of the market. It does seem like they would need better public reporting standards if this is now going to be widely available. Uh, interesting. Mike, thanks so much. Mike Santoli. So, Sharon, we turn to you looking at how this could change retirement funds and the way that people invest their money. Well, it's important to know, Kelly, that the Department of Labor has said that this can be used private equity investments can be used as an option in target date funds, in target risk funds, and in balance funds within a 401k. This is not a statement that you can use private equity as a standalone investment option. And while the exposure to the private equity markets could further diversify your portfolio, financial advisors and consumers, consumer advocates say it's really important to carefully consider the risks. There is a lack of transparency here. Information on private equity funds that invest in private companies is not as readily available as mutual funds that are investing in public companies. And therefore, it can be difficult to consistently pick the winners. Also keep in mind that target date funds are often a default option for many workers and some less sophisticated investors. So consumer advocates are concerned that including a private equity option in a 401k is providing an option 
to workers who can least afford to take that kind of risk, Kelly. That's absolutely right. I mean, I'm not even sure I know what's in my targeted fund. Very few people are going to go through. I mean, if you ever wanted to a bonanza, you'd say, yeah, just stick it in the targeted fund. I mean, who and you and I don't even know if you can opt out. I remember I looked at mine once and it was in international equities. I didn't want that exposure, but I don't think I could do anything about it. So it would make a lot more sense to me to have people proactively decide they want to put their money in there as opposed to would I even know if it was in my target dated fund unless I really went through all the trouble of checking? Yeah, you raise a really good point. And I just got off the phone with Fidelity, which is the largest 401k provider out there. And they said that, look, this may possibly be an option that would be appealing to uh, the mass affluent, affluent investors and sophisticated investors. But the fact that they're saying now that it has to be in a target date or a balance fund, um, these are generally not the most sophisticated investors who are going to opt for these in their 401k. So you're kind of offering it to the people who are less likely to understand it and let alone be able to use it effectively for their long-term goals. The key here is that investors need to make sure that whatever they're investing in in their 401k is something that's really going to help them achieve their goals to be able to retire, to be able to work differently down the road. And what this is doing is not something that's transparent for the investor. Right. It's actually something that now the employer has to decide on and taking that extra step, making sure that the employer has the fiduciary responsibility to really investigate that this is a private equity option that is lower risk, that is cost effective. Those are two words that don't usually go with private equity. Right. And again, if they if they put up great results, you know, that that'll be great for everybody holding it. But it's also Sharon, last thing interesting to me that at a time when private equity's reputation isn't that great, it always becomes a political punching bag. I mean, people rail, uh, get rail against carried interest and yet might have exposure to that very benefit, not that they're fund managers themselves, but anyway, they're supporting the industry uh, through those target dated funds. So it just seems like a, a little bit of a, of a strange move to me. <laughs> Well, it seems like a strange move because you're thinking of it as a 401k investor, not as someone who wants to get a chunk of that $6 trillion that you mentioned and is seeing the the, uh, the assets that they have that are in defined benefit plans and pension plans dwindle. And now they're looking at the robust 401k market. Absolutely. Wouldn't you want to be part of it? Yep. $6 trillion. Every investor should be part of it, right? Yep. Every yep. consumer and regular investors should definitely be part of it if they have access to it. Yeah. But be careful. Make sure you understand the options. Very, very well uh, said. Uh, really interesting. Sharon, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Sharon Epperson My pleasure. Uh, talking us through some of these big changes. Coming up, it'll be a long flight back to normal, but we're starting to see a small glimmer of hope in the airline industry. The latest figures and what it's telling us about how the rest of the year will play out. And the famous fountains at the Bellagio Hotel... Do we have pictures? They are flowing again, apparently. Four more casinos are set to open this hour. We're going to bring you all the very latest as those fountains reopen. And here's the inside of the Bellagio, which just opened its doors moments ago. We're going to look at what we can expect for the whole industry. Stay with us. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Look at the airline stocks today. They are soaring. Uh, Americans up 25 percent, even Delta's up 10 percent. This on the news that some are starting to add more flights as states lift lockdown restrictions and economies begin to reopen. Our Phil Lebeau has more on the path forward for airlines and his interview with American CEO Doug Parker today. Hi, Phil. Hi, Kelly. When you take a look at what's happening with flight schedules in June, it is clear that at least domestically, the big four airlines, they are adding more flights. How many more? On average, 27.7% more flights in June than they had in May. Here are the percentages. You see the biggest increases from American, Delta, and Southwest. When you take a look at American and United and you look at their July schedules, they continue to add even more flights, and that's one reason the stocks are moving higher. Americans' July schedule, it's down 60% compared to a year ago. Hey, it was down 80% back in the early parts of May. United schedule will be down 75%. It was down 90% back in April and in May. All of this brings up the question, are people ready to fly again? Our States of Play survey asked that question, and it basically was a simple question. Is it safe to fly if you are a traveler? Look at this. Just 24% believe that it is safe to get on a flight given the coronavirus that is still hitting the country right now. 60% believe it is unsafe. And as you mentioned, Kelly, earlier today we did have a chance to talk with American CEO Doug Parker. Now we talked about the state of the business, but the primary point of the conversation was about his uh, interaction and emotional interaction with an African-American flight attendant last weekend who approached him and discussed race relations with him and began the conversation. It left an impression on Doug Parker, and he said today, we need to do better, meaning American and all corporations need to do better. Here's Parker talking about what American needs to do. I have a voice, um, and those of us that are privileged um, with leadership have, I believe, um, a responsibility uh, to use that privilege, that gift, um, to break down barriers for those that are less privileged. And that's what uh, Jock Ray taught me. Uh, that's what I'm going to that's going to what I'm going to keep working to try to do. Candid comments from Doug Parker. You should watch the whole interview. It is posted on CNBC.com. The thing that stands out to me, Kelly, Americans instituted a lot of initiatives in the last couple of years to deal with diversity, inclusiveness and to be, become a better company. And he says, I thought we were doing a lot. We clearly need to do even more. Interesting. Phil, stay right there. We're going to talk more about the airlines right now uh, with Madhu Unikrishnan. He's editor of Skift Airline Weekly and former editor-in-chief of Aviation Daily. Madhu, it's great to have you here as well. You know, the thing that I keep thinking about is Americans' future. Um, they have and are going to have a tremendous debt load. So when we see their stock make a comeback like this, it maybe suggests uh, they have some more time to, to figure things out. But what kind of solutions, Madhu, do you think they have in order to stay afloat here? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, you know, this is uh, these are very encouraging numbers that Phil just reported out of the uh, the airline industry. But, you know, it's uh, they're coming from such a low base. I mean, they, they, the recovery will be slow and it will be painful. And I think, you know, that it'll uh, all the CEOs have said it'll take two to three years at least before we start to see airlines come back to the levels they had in December or even January of this year. And, Phil, I was struck by when we spoke about this earlier and you said, look, there's there can't really be consolidation. You know, there's only a couple of major airlines now right. that the path in that direction is not entirely clear. So does that mean there's there's no chance we get consolidation or or how else are these companies are they just going to continue to raise money? I mean, the debt loads become a huge factor, not in everybody's case, uh, but certainly right. for some like American. Well, look, you can never say there won't be any consolidation at all. 
all of the airlines, the major ones, have enough liquidity to make it at least through the end of the year. The real challenging period, Kelly, is going to be the first quarter of next year for a couple of reasons. One, it's the slowest period of year for the airlines. So that's when your revenue slows down the most. And if your debt load is still fairly high at that point and the return of passengers is still not that great at that point, that's where you will see the stress for some airlines, especially those that have taken on a lot of debt. It's also striking, Madhu, that American is ramping up its flights more quickly. They're going to fly 55% of their domestic schedule in July compared with United, uh, which is just going to fly 25% of its domestic schedule. Does that reflect the desperation that American has? And, uh, you know, in general, for the safety standards, are these going to kind of move all in the same way? Should people expect the same flying experience, uh, plane to plane, airline to airline? Um, what do you think the deal is there? And, and as Phil said, people are still pretty skeptical about getting him back in the skies. Right. Um, to, for the first part of your question, American has um, a large domestic network, and that's through the benefit of its merger um, several years ago with U.S. Airways, which is primarily a domestic airline. Domestic as Parker said, uh, Doug Parker said in his interview earlier today, domestic uh, travel is going to come back faster. And that's that's to the detriment of carriers like Delta and United, which have large intercontinental networks. So Americans better positioned, like Southwest, it's better positioned to take advantage of the trends in the return of travel. Um, as for the cleaning standards, um, you know, the flying experience is going to vary from carrier to carrier. You have some like uh, JetBlue's saying it'll block off middle seats till... Fourth of July, Delta saying till September 30th, um, and others saying you know it's impossible to block off middle seats, and that trend will just not continue. So I think the until there is sort of a national standard from the Department of Transportation or the FAA, I think the flying experience will vary between carriers that are blocking off middle seats and taking sort of more aggressive steps for social distancing, and those that are not. Right, and are we getting any sense, Phil, that those who are taking more aggressive steps are getting more benefit? Uh, and uh, serve, you know, uh, sales as a result? No, I, I, have not, I have not seen any concrete data that says somebody is booking a particular airline, whether it's JetBlue or Delta, because there is a guarantee that the middle seat will not be filled versus flying on United, who has said, look, we're going to try not to fill that middle seat, but if a particular flight has a, a strong uh, demand, we may have to put people in some of the middle seats. I've not seen any data that shows that people are staying away from flights that may have somebody sitting in the middle seat. Right. We'll see how it goes over the summer, I, I guess. Madhu Unikrishnan and Phil LeBeau, thank you both very much today. Thanks for having me. Talking through the airlines. Coming up, the rent is coming due for many businesses, and in the retail world, many aren't paying. We're going to look at who isn't, how much is due, and the potentially dangerous chain reaction. Plus, one market watcher says there's a conflict between liquidity and fundamentals in the market, and that could spell trouble for the rally. He'll explain. Remember, you can always watch and listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a look at markets right now. We're moving well off the lows, not quite into positive territory, but in the Dow's case, only about a third of a percent away from that. It's down 82 points right now. The S&P down 17, the Nasdaq down 64. Once again, the Nasdaq is the laggard, about a two-thirds of a percent decline. The declines aren't large, but they are pretty broad in the market today. Only two sectors are in the green. They're financials and industrials. So there again, you can see that kind of value, you know, rotation underway, so to speak. Financials are up half a percent. Every other sector other than those two is in the red. Today, real estate is the deepest with nearly a 2% decline. Healthcare utilities are also lower. Let's check in on some of the individual movers. Right now, we're seeing a, after a big opening day for Warner Music, remember, which IPO'd yesterday, they're continuing to add about 8% today with another rally there. So pretty good day for Warner Music Group. And we'll also check in on shares of Boeing, which is leading the Dow again today. The stock is up 40% in a month. Boeing shares are up nearly 7% again today. We were just speaking about uh, airlines seeing more passenger travel. And eBay shares are jumping to hit a 52-week high after they raised second quarter guidance on stronger volume growth. Nice session for eBay, which is up more than 7%. So some strong winners in the market despite these overall declines today. Now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Attorney General William Barr says it is undeniable that many African-Americans lack confidence in the justice system. He says federal law enforcement is now focused on violent protests, which are designed to terrify fellow citizens. In New York, crowds have gathered for a memorial to George Floyd. This ahead of larger events scheduled for 2 p.m. Eastern time in Minneapolis and in other areas around the country. And in Missouri, health officials say there have been no additional infections from the crowded pool parties at the lakes of the Ozarks over Memorial Day weekend. Pictures of those parties were shown at a congressional hearing with CDC Director Robert Redfield. He says calls to wear masks and practice social distancing are not being heard. We're very concerned that our public health message isn't resonating. We continue to try to figure out how to penetrate the message uh, with different groups. Uh, the pictures that the chairwoman showed me are great examples of uh, serious problems. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll see you next hour. Back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera. Casinos on the famed Las Vegas Strip are reopening for business after being shuttered since mid-March because of the pandemic. Contessa Brewer is out in... Are you out in Vegas, Contessa? With a look at the path forward there? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in the opposite of Vegas. I wish I was in it's Vegas. It's pretty forested no, I'm in for the Vegas. woods of upstate yeah. New York. Yeah. Right. You know what it is? It's sour grapes. If I can't be there, I'm going to go the opposite direction, Kelly. <laughs> but look, reopening can't happen soon enough for workers in Las Vegas with an unemployment rate of more than 33% in April, the highest by far of any major American city. So the Bellagio Fountains restarting last hour, this is a real symbol of hope for tens of thousands of laid-off casino workers. And those on the job are wearing masks, both front and back of house. There's been a massive, intense effort to screen and to test employees when Las Vegas opened its own on-site testing center. And I want to show you a live shot inside the Bellagio as we speak. This is what it looks like. And I just want to tell you, these guests are undergoing temperature checks when they go in. 
uh, additional scrutiny, screening by health professionals if it looks like that's necessary. And they're encouraged, though not required, to wear masks. Wouldn't be here if we weren't, didn't feel safe and comfortable. Well, we come all the time normally. And she, she, she's been watching the openings for uh, at least, what, a month, two, two months. It probably feels crowded to those in Las Vegas who've seen the empty streets for two and a half months. But the city's only at 20 percent capacity right now. Building occupancy, Kelly, is capped at 50 percent. Do you say you don't need a mask inside? That seems surprising. I mean, this is what they've come up with to make sure that the workers are protecting the guests and they're handing out free masks. They've got them there so that if people are willing to wear them inside the casinos, they've got them available and they're enforcing social distancing going in. But is it required? Not mandatory. Wow. Besides that, as a lot of people point out, Kelly, it's hard to smoke and drink if you're wearing a mask. Yeah, well, it's hard to, you know, not get coronavirus and spread it if you're not wearing a mask. I get it. Um, Contessa, that's really fascinating. We'll see how it goes throughout the launch. We appreciate it. Thanks very much, Contessa Brewer in New York for us. Coming up, nearly 90% of U.S. cities expect revenue shortfalls this year, and many will turn to the muni market. Should investors be wary with such economic uncertainty, or will the Fed be the ultimate backstop? Plus, Simon Property is suing the gap over skipped rent payments, and it could just be the beginning of a wave of bills unpaid by retailers. Who's missing payments, and how will it impact the markets? That's coming up. Welcome back. A new spotlight has been placed on the lack of diversity among many industries, including Wall Street. People are looking to corporate leadership for solutions. And my next guest is head of the largest minority and women-owned investment bank in the country. I'm joined by Suzanne Shank. She is CEO of Siebert Williams Shank & Company, a firm with such an interesting history and and so many different uh, great people involved. Suzanne, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. And what you guys focus on is also near and dear to our hearts right now. We'll, we'll get into that and some of the issues with the municipal bond market right now. Uh, but first, just if you would, could just kind of speak to this moment uh, in the culture and how you've been communicating with your company. Yes, as an African-American woman on Wall Street, I really take all of this very much to heart. Um, for us, diversity and inclusion is not just, you know, a chapter in our you know, company manual. Um, This is the third major disruption, I think, in my 30-plus year career on Wall Street. I started with Black Monday about two months after I started in the financial crisis as head of a firm, and now the situation today. And this is really unique because it is a financial crisis, a health crisis, and a social crisis all rolled up into one. Um, I grew up in the South and saw the systemic racism my parents faced events of late and and in recent years has been really, really troubling. Um, My birth certificate still identifies my father as a Negro laborer, as many African-Americans were characterized at that time. So I understand well the frustration that everyone is feeling today. And as COVID-19 continues to devastate communities of color disproportionately um, and police brutality impacting so many lives needlessly, Um, I've really had to tune in to our employees to make sure that physically and mentally, you know, they're feeling supported. Sure. And what practical impact has it had on your business as you have have emphasized the first minority women owned business enterprise to be in the top 10 of all muni debt underwriters? Um, And, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, minority women owned. It's another thing to kind of continue that 
leadership, I guess you would call it, across all levels of the organization. So what's the practical impact been at your firm? Well, you know, the effects of the pandemic, um, you know, with uh, tackling social social distancing and dislocation, married with the impact of recent events on the staff personally, means that the health of the company and our people are bound together even tighter. Um, our firm, as you noted, is majority woman-owned, 60%, majority African-American-owned, over 72%. But we also work really, really hard to improve our numbers. We have 36% Black employees, 30% women employees. Those numbers are, are higher than probably most other firms on the street, as you can well imagine. But I continue to try to improve them to be inclusive. Absolutely. And I want to ask a little bit about your bread and butter business here in the municipal market lately. I mean, talk about uh, Lollapalooza effects. We've had the coming together of so many challenges, low interest rates. Uh, you've had the pandemic. Now you have the protests. You know, these budgets have just been decimated. Um, a lot of municipalities are relying on borrowing in order to kind of fill these gaps and, and the Fed's backstop there. What can you tell us about how this is playing out on the front lines? Well, despite the chaos in the stock markets and the stunning, stunning unemployment data that we're seeing, the bond market has remarkably stabilized um, dramatically since the pandemic began. Um, we saw significant dislocation at the beginning of the pandemic, um, at the announcement in mid-March to early April with rates spiking and large bond fund outflows. Um, and numerous high-grade transactions. So issuers who were trying to access the markets really had to postpone transactions and go to day-to-day. -to -day. But in recent weeks, um, we've really seen great improvement. And I think that's both a testament to the support of the you know, federal support, um, the uh, Municipal Liquidity Facility Program being instituted as a backstop to local, local municipalities to take advantage of cash flow borrowings um, with notes out to up to 36 months. But it's also because investors have so much money they need to put somewhere. Right. And June is a huge redemption month and a big maturity month for lots of bonds. And so we see a lot of money that's available right now. So we did just this week um, a $700 plus million New York water transaction. That's viewed to be an essential service. And that deal had maturities from 2025 to 2050, and we achieved the 2.87% TIC. Wow. Um, we did State of Connecticut last week, um, 500 million taxable. Um, it was a 10-year deal, and the TIC was below two and a half, wow. actually 2.4%. So interest rates are still very low, and I think high-grade issuers are obviously who need to borrow are taking advantage of those attractive rates. And investors still need to place money where they feel, um, you know, they have money to deploy. Final quick question, Suzanne. What do you say to those who have typically invested in muni bonds, especially because they offer such great tax uh, efficient yields, um, but who are worried about where these state and local budgets are headed over the next two to five to 10 years? What would you say to them? Well, municipalities are, have shored up since the financial crisis. And obviously, what we're facing today is even worse than what we faced during the financial crisis. I think the hope is that there's going to be a fourth stimulus package that is more specifically focused on state and local governments. So I would tell any taxpayer that now is the time 
to dial up your uh, favorite senator in your localities across the country. And it doesn't matter if it's a red state or a blue state. Every state and city is going to be impacted by COVID. Um, and prior to pan pandemic, your municipality had probably balanced budgets and well-funded pensions. Um, that's in jeopardy now. So we really need to get another stimulus package to provide funding to offset these COVID-related losses and expenditures. Interesting. Um, yeah, maybe even dial up your least favorite senator uh, if, right. <laughs> if it's that pressing. Uh, Suzanne, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Please keep us posted. Thank you. Take care. We appreciate it. Suzanne Shank of Siebert Williams Shank and Company. Still ahead, stocks are trying to rally for a fourth straight day with the S&P up 39% in less than three months. But one trader says he's seeing signs this is all overbought. We'll dig into that next. Plus, from the gap to Planet Fitness, some retailers are not paying their rents, and that could spell doom for the commercial real estate market. We'll dig into those numbers coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. Stocks are taking a breather today after another big jobless claims number. My next guest says the market is in a tug of war between liquidity and fundamentals. And he says the next move is lower. Joining me now is Jim Yorio, the managing director of TJM Institutional Services and a CNBC contributor with our favorite artwork in the background. Jim, welcome <laughs> back. It's good to see you. Um, so first of all, explain this tug of war. Well, okay, just think of it this way. On March 23rd was the, when we put in the lows in the stock market. That was the same exact day that the Fed announced unlimited QE. I, I don't think that was a coincidence. I think what the market told us at that time, they'd gone down 36%, was that, yes, this is going to be extremely tough sledding from a macroeconomic standpoint, and that's an understatement, but the Fed and the federal government has our backs. And not just that, you know, other central banks have opened the spigots as well, and that's what's been flooding in. Now, the whole time I've thought... This is great, and this can take us back up to a reasonable level, but the 3130 level, which was the highs we put in in the beginning of March before we fell off that cliff, I thought the, the fundamentals of the economy has to put up or shut up for us to eclipse that, and that's where we're at now. So you think the next move is lower because of which factor winning out? Because because just now we're in no man's land. We know that the Fed and the, uh, the government is there and we hope that the recovery is coming. But up to this point, we haven't really seen any economic data to support that. And it's going to be too soon. We need probably another month for that. So my thinking is only it's, I'm not talking about testing the lows again, because I do know that the Fed ultimately still has a back. I'm talking about a move back down to about twenty eight hundred. And I'm fine with that. That's about 10 percent from here. But I think at the end of the day, when we get to July and August and Hopefully the pandemic's behind us. We're seeing what looks like a real recovery. The thing that I worry the most about is that the, is the Fed sticking around, the government launching a fourth stimulus package the previous guest just talked about, mm -hmm. and then inflation might become a worry, which is interesting we mentioned that today because the dollar is broken lower, the curve is steepening a little bit. I know we don't like to mention that word inflation because we haven't seen it in 30 years, <laughs> but I think there are some people worried about it. No, it's interesting, especially, you know, we have been watching the dollar and that weakness and trying to kind of go through that there. And more people lately are starting to recommend tips and, and so forth. I wanted to ask you, though, I mean, when we talk about whether stocks are, you know, kind of overstretched or not, you can look to other asset classes. And oil, for instance, I mean, has gone from minus 30 something a barrel to now fighting to go to the you know mid 30s or higher. Um, wouldn't that tell you that there's also some. I don't know if optimism is the right word, but that the the kind of point of view that that's expressing is a recovering economy. 
No, I think optimism is the right word. It's just being used in a small dose right now. I think the, the move higher in crude from those unbelievably depressed lows from, I think it was about six weeks ago when we had that ridiculous print in the futures contracts, they, we priced in literally global financial Armageddon. Now, we, we weren't that far off. I mean, this has been, I was going to say the word unprecedented, so ring the bell, everybody drinks, unprecedented. But it, it clearly is the right word to say. So pricing in that that amount of time, so then we're coming back with a short squeeze, and then we get the dollar weakness, a belief that that's going to help the emerging markets. Um, that's probably pushing oil a little bit, too. But I think it's mostly probably just squeezing out shorts, the pendulum swinging to pricing in too bad to pricing in too good, up to about 40 bucks is my target there. All right, Jim, thanks so much. Uh, love checking in with you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jim Urio of TJM Institutional Services. Well, the funds from round one of the Paycheck Protection Program flew out of the banks, but the second cycle of funding is more of a trickle. Why is round two so different and what will the path forward for small business look like? We'll have that next. Also, take a look at shares of the cruise lines today. It's not just the airlines that are outperforming. Norwegian's up 8%, Carnival up 7%, even Royal Caribbean eking out a rebound. Stay with us right here on The Exchange. Welcome back. The first round of PPP funds ran out in a hurry, but the second round still has $120 billion left in the pot. Kate Rogers has what's behind the slow drip of funds this time around as we look at the path forward for small businesses. Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. As of May 30th, the SBA had made 2.8 million loans, totaling about $186 billion. So as you said, there's still more than $120 billion in unallocated funds remaining. That's a big departure from round one, where funding ran out in about two weeks. Advocates say there are a few reasons why this money remains. First, changing guidance from the SBA and Treasury. They've issued about a dozen changes or new rules since the program's launch. Also worries about business stability and actually using the money. There's also fear of potential audits. One reason why the Consumers Bankers Association has called for mass forgiveness of all loans under $150,000 and concerns about the program's rigidity. As written right now, NFIB research shows that small businesses had concerns about being able to comply with the law as written in order to have their loans fully forgiven. Those concerns may be eased somewhat now thanks to the Senate's passing of the PPP Flexibility Act, which has now been sent to the president for his signature. This tweaks the 75-25 rule on payroll usage to 60-40. It also extends the time frame to actually spend the aid, among other things. But it still remains to be seen if those changes will now entice small businesses to get into the program if they hadn't already applied to take on these loans and potentially use them to get back on their feet. Kelly, back over to you. And what are we hearing, Kate, in terms of the landscape for small businesses overall? You know, we're now a couple months into the pandemic. They've just extended the, you know, the deadline for people to use the money. But, you know, what would you say that the mood is? I mean, looking at NFIB data, month to month in this current time frame, it hasn't been good. But one of the bright spots we saw last month was that looking out to the next six months was one of the only things that small businesses were starting to feel positive about. So I think as we march toward reopening, you know, things get into the new normal. I think there's some optimism about getting back to business. But you have to remember, running a hair salon or a restaurant at 50 or 75 percent capacity is a major challenge. So it remains to be seen how that actually impacts their bottom lines and, and potentially their confidence moving forward. That's true. That's for sure. Kate, thanks so much. Kate Rogers with the very latest there. Mall owner Simon Property Group is suing the gap over unpaid rent. This is the first big public battle, but it certainly won't be the last one. A look at who's at risk and what it means for the real estate market. That is next. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Commercial real estate may be in big trouble with tenants unable to pay their rent due to the coronavirus shutdown. The nation's biggest mall operator, Simon Property Group, is now suing the gap for more than $65 million in skipped rent payments. Landry's chairman and CEO Tillman Fertitta told Power Lunch last week that a crisis is brewing for commercial real estate. Get people back to work and at the same time the operators. If you don't do something, we are going to cause a commercial real estate bust at some time because we can't pay rent if we're not doing business. And joining me now is Heather Long, the economics correspondent at The Washington Post. Uh, she has a new story out today describing the extent of this problem that nearly half of commercial retail rents were not paid in April and May. Heather, welcome. Um, so I, I guess the best hope is that you, you wait a few months and things normalize and maybe that's it. But this move by Simon against the gap today suggests that it's not going to be that easy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think you're right. And what we're seeing is landlords a lot of times are trying to wait this out. And what I've heard as I've called around is basically about half of retail tenants have asked for some sort of forbearance from their landlord. Of course, landlords do not want to give half of their tenants a break. That would be financially ruinous for them. So what they're trying to do right now is suss out who really needs the help and who's likely to survive this pandemic and be a good paying tenant later on. They might be willing to give them a break. But we're in this like black box phase where nobody wants to cave right now. Nobody wants to give the gap that that break or, or give Starbucks, which has asked for some sort of forbearance for the next year, a break. Because once they do that, every other tenant is going to come back and say, where's my break? Absolutely. And we've seen a lot of this turmoil play out in the market near the lows when a lot of the mortgage real estate investment trusts, some of the commercial property names were really hard hit. Um, do, you, do you think investors will end up saying, you know, look, we'd rather this investment work in the long run. And you guys, you know, if you have to give them, you know, forbearance or break, you know, work that out for now, that's fine. Or do you think they're going to really hold the line here and say, no, we're worried that if you let one slide, you're going to let all of them slide? Well, from an economic standpoint, and certainly I am very worried about lots of small businesses going belly up because of this standoff with land, between landlords and tenants. But I, what I'm seeing so far and hearing so far is very much ten, landlords are holding the line. They are more concerned about giving too much forbearance, giving up too much this early. And in particular, what you've seen in a lot of major cities like Washington, D.C. and New York City, there is a currently a moratorium on commercial evictions. So even if you wanted to get rid of some problematic tenants, you can't do it right now. But towards the end of the summer, you know, that those moratoriums begin to go away and that starts to give more leverage back to the landlord to say, come on, you got to pay your rent now. Well, I'm surprised even now that, as you describe it, the landlords are holding the line and they seem to believe they do have a lot of leverage over the tenants. But I mean, if the tenants leave, I, is someone else really going to like if the gap leaves right now, who's going to jump up into that space? Uh, I agree with you. <laughs> and that's uh, that's uh, the best comment I heard about as I called around was, this is going to be a bonanza for land uh, for lawyers. Mm -hmm. Basically, all of this is already ending up in court, whether it's large companies like The Gap or in my story, I profile a U Street Music Hall, a, a pretty iconic music venue in Washington, D.C. They're currently in court with their small landlord over whether or not they should get a payment plan. And, and they this uh, U Street Music Hall hasn't paid their rent 
for April, May or June either. So very similar to the gap. So you're just seeing this uh, across the board. The other thing that doesn't come into play enough that people aren't thinking through that I'm even more worried about than maybe turmoil among investors, I think there's going to be very few property um, rents paid by these commercial landlords, particularly in the retail space. And as we know, many cities are very cash strapped right now. And I was talking to some D.C. council members who and who helped enact these moratoriums on commercial you know, evictions. And they they were so surprised at this idea that I was suggesting that some of these landlords won't pay their property taxes this summer or wow. this fall. But obviously, if almost half of, of retail tenants aren't paying their rent right now, landlords don't magically have the money to turn around and pay their property taxes. That's fascinating. That just adds to the theme of the show today, which is the challenges for local budgets. So final quick question. Is there anything Congress can do? Well, the best news out of all of this happened yesterday, which is that PPP program you all were just talking about on the show for small businesses. They finally made those corrections to that program. Uh, so now instead of only 25 percent of the loan and grant money being able to go towards rent or overhead costs, up to 40 percent can go towards rent and overhead. That certainly helps a little bit. But it's another reason landlords are saying, wait a minute. Can't you pay a little bit more now? Interesting. Heather, you just tied so much together for us. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Heather Long from The Washington Post. And that does it for us here on The Exchange. Thanks for joining me. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.